Hey, I'm Joel. And I'm Elon. And we're here with another episode of Mixtape, but we have some news. We got some news. We got a new member of the uh, team. What? You guys uh, met him before. Um, he was on an episode in season one, so without The it, History of the Remix, I think it was called, right? Yes. And if you haven't listened to that one, please uh, download it, play it in your car, do whatever kids do nowadays. Cool. But anyway, without further ado, here's John. John. Hello. Hello. Tell us a little bit about you and why you're uh, excited about being a part of the podcast. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I would say that my background, let's start with, uh, I, I thought I was going to be a fine artist, a painter, and then I got sucked into the world, going to art school, I got sucked into the world of design, and that's where I am to this day, is, is design and interior design, but music was always the foundation for everything, and whether it was art or or... or uh, fashion or anything. It was always uh, music was the thing that informed all of that. So it's something that I've been kind of a de facto obsessive about the entire time. And I think one of the things that I'm really, or one of the things I am really excited about having you on board is you, you have a history and you provide context. And I think that's a, a key piece of, of what I want to have be a part of the podcast going forward. So we're really excited to have you. Thank you. All right, so Duran Duran is a big subject, and um, there's a lot of ways to approach it. But I think something that that I'm fascinated by is the way when you go forward in history, things in the rearview mirror get contextualized differently. And I think that a lot of us who grew up with MTV, we know that in the early 80s, and the way we look back on it is new wave. And and to me, the the ultimate new wave bands would be Devo or, um, you know, the waitresses who did, you know, square pegs and uh, all that. So that's, but I started thinking about it and and new wave really, I'm going to argue was more of an American, um, more of an American category. And in England, sandwiched between um, punk and and let's say what came afterwards, there was a movement called the New Romantics. And the New Romantics were kind of, uh, we, we, we packaged them, I think, for MTV as New Wave. And that would have been bands like Spandau Ballet, um, Soft Cell, Adam and the Ants, um, um, ABC, all those, ba- Culture Club for sure. Visage is, is kind of the ultimate when you say Visage, I think of M- M- Michelle Visage. So who is Visage for? Visage, what? Okay, thank you. All right. So the, so the new romantic scene started really at the Blitz Club in London. And the Blitz Club, you had Steve Strange as the doorman. You had Nick Egan. No, Rusty. Sorry, Rusty Egan was the DJ. And Boy George was the coat check person. Boy George was a co-check person? Yes. Yeah. Wow. And apparently he stole everything out of the, uh, he stole everything out of the pockets, apparently. You didn't want to give him your coat. That I can believe. Yeah. But anyway, so that was where it all started. And you asked about um, Steve Strange. Steve Strange, who was the doorman, he started the band Visage. And they, I think it was 1980, I may have my date a little off, but I think 1980 was when um, the song uh, Fade to Grey 
and that is the new romantic song of them all. Interestingly, in order to make the band work, they pulled in musicians from Ultravox. So you had um, the keyboardist from Ultravox, and and Visage wasn't really a real band. It was more of a concept. So should we play a little bit of that to give people some Fade context? to Grey would be the one for sure. All right, let's do it. You had all these bands vying for attention, and and the idea was that these were very aspirational young kids in England, and and they sometimes got accused of being style over substance because it was all about makeup and being glamorous and and very aspirational. When you think of Duran Duran, that is exactly what Duran Duran represented at that time: tons of makeup, frilly pirate shirts. All that over the top, um, but but the v- visuals. But everyone, I think every era, the teen pop or sort of young pop or rock or whatever is accused of that. But I think I feel like one of the differences with these guys, not only Duran Duran, but a lot of these bands, is they wrote their own music. Okay, so right. Spandau Ballet were pretty. The, Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet were the two that were really competitive with one another. Um, they were going for the same audience. They had the same kind of... They were both going places with their singles. And the interesting thing about Duran Duran is they were from Birmingham, England. And Spandau Ballet thought, oh, who are these guys from Birmingham? Ugh. But Duran Duran... I think what's always bothered me is that is back in the 80s, people thought that they were a teeny bop band. They thought that it was for teenage girls and... and I think that they got discredited for they actually wrote incredibly amazing songs and not unlike as a little kid who grew up with Star Wars I can't believe at this age in my life I still wear Star Wars t-shirts and still go to see the movies same thing with Duran Duran you know they're still touring they're still recording music and I think that is because they were such great songwriters and performers and they were more than a band all about aesthetics so within that landscape of Spandau Ballet, Duran Duran, and, and all the other bands, what do you think made Duran Duran pop? And specific to that first album, I'm more of a, I love Duran Duran. I have many of their albums, including recent ones, but yet I would consider myself 
more uh, uh, more than a casual fan, but not like I don't drill like perhaps you do, right? Right. So when I go back and listen to that first album, the mm-hmm. two songs I really remember are "Girls on Film," right? And is there something I should know? Well, okay, that's that was the re-edition of the album that came out after Rio. Because oh, okay. they, because um, is there something I should know? Was a standalone single, and for obvious for marketing purposes, they re-released the first album okay. and put that on as a new single, and they bumped off a song called "To the Shore." So one of the things that I found fascinating when I kind of got into Duran Duran, and maybe you can talk about this a little bit, is how the album was mixed completely differently from the version that was released in the UK right? to the versions that... Rio. We yeah. Heard. Because I had no idea that that, that actually happened. I, and I, I went, long story short, I saw Duran Duran in concert maybe three years ago, and it got me really interested in, like, I'm going to buy all their albums. And I ran into the, hey, UK version versus US version. I was like, I had no idea there was two versions. And I, personally, I love the UK version more than... Than the U.S. version. Now, the only reason I say that is because growing up, all I heard was the U.S. version. So right. for me, it was almost like getting a brand new Duran Duran album. Right, right. Well, okay, that's interesting. That feeds into Joel's question about why were they more successful than the others in the pack. I think the others got labeled as of their time, of their period. Eventually, mm-hmm. you know, Adam and the Ants you know, became Adam and you know, and there's only so far he was able to go with that shtick. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Soft Cell. And and um, they're one and done, right? With yeah, exactly. And we, well, well, that's arguable, but yeah, for the sake of this conversation, yeah. Um, and Culture Club. I mean, you know, even though I think we all love Culture Club, it became cartoonish after a certain point. Whereas yeah. Duran Duran kept morphing and mutating. Now, I don't, like, and I don't really feel like. I feel like Culture Club is a British band, but I never associated with them with this whole new romantics era. Is that a a mistake on my part, or I, I, was well, I think that we didn't know. We didn't know what. Okay, all right. I want to answer Alan's question mm-hmm. because see, this is such a fascinating, yeah, big subject. Okay, so Duran Duran. For those of you who are super fans, you'll probably remember they had the Japanese mini albums that would accompany the main album. And so, famously, Rio had Carnival, which had the 12-inch versions of the songs on it. Um, for the first album, the Duran Duran album, there was an album called a mini album called Night Romantics. Again, that was the Japanese album of 12-inch singles. And Night Romantics, I didn't know what that meant. N I T E Romantics. And then on the Obi strip. And for people who don't know, when you used to buy an import Japanese vinyl, it had this paper band um, that slid onto the label, and it was almost like an obi on a on a um, on a oh gosh, what do you call the thing? The thing the Japanese that geishas wear um, kimono. Kimono. Yeah, it was like, and it was called, and, the, and the nickname <laughs> for it is an obi strip, and it had the Japanese the language and the track listing and all that. Well, anyway, on the obi strip, it said. New Romantics. And as a teenager, I was like, what is this? What does this mean? We didn't know in the U.S. It, not, new, the New Romantic movement didn't have, it didn't have traction here. That was a British thing. We had New Wave. So I think that for us, bands like Missing Persons and, um, and the cars and things like that all got thrown into... Well, the cars weren't New Wave, arguably. But anyway, all that MTV <laughs> stuff got thrown in together. Okay. And so that's why it may be a new 
concept for a lot of people. Okay. But um, but back to Elan's question about the mix, the American label well, was Capital. Did wasn't sure how to market Duran Duran. They were having hit singles in England, and they decided, you know, well they're they're a dance band, and so the album was remixed for the American market and it was given, it was punchier and, but they also, they brought up the guitars and some of the things too, to, to try to sweeten it for the American ear and for the American market. Mm-hmm. That sounds terrible, but it wasn't, it was actually really, really good. It worked. Yeah. There's one song in it that it really sticks out and it's reflex. So yeah. let's play a clip of the original reflex and we'll follow that with the United States version of Reflex, so the audience can judge for themselves. Cool. Just to explain what we're because we've talked we've thrown out a bunch of things we've talked about how there was a Japanese album that mirrored the regular release is that what I'm hearing and, and one of those was called Carnival so I, I want you to explain two things one what right. was that and then separately this English piece which is like the English version that then gets remixed for uh, the American audience and then the how does the right. Asian piece. Duran Duran were a lot of fun for collectors and fans because there was plenty to collect and buy. And so they were, along with some other people in the era, you would have the album, the LP, and then you would have, for the Japanese market, there would be a 12-inch album, which would be usually about five tracks. It'd be maybe the three singles and a couple of B-sides thrown in. So Duran Duran, for the first album, they had one called Night Romantics. Mm -hmm. For Rio, 
they had Carnival, which was a clever, you know, thing, the little mini album to go with the with the album. And then for um, Seven and the Ragged Tiger, which had Reflex, you had Tiger Tiger, and that was that was the three singles with a couple of B sides thrown in. So it was it was for the Japanese market, but obviously you could buy it as an import. And that was great to have all that. You know, that, this is, again, back in the era of a physical, you know, you had the, a record that you could put on, and it had all the 12-inch versions. Right. Got it. Okay. Understood. So let's get sidetracked a little bit. Where were you picking up these um, Japanese versions of albums? Tell us a little bit about, like, kind of where you grew up and oh, okay. your local record store, so, because I would imagine that would be kind of hard to find, no? That's funny. In the suburbs, so... <laughs> so sometimes you were lucky if there was like a, a really good, larger, progressive record store that had a good. Uh, okay, let me see. For those of you who have never record shopped before, <laughs> <laughs> um, you used to go into the record store, and of course everything was categorized by rock, country, and whatever. R and B. Yes, exactly. And you would go to your zone to flip through, you know, like a library, what you mm-hmm. wanted. Well, some of the larger uh, record stores would have an import section, and that was where the gold really was. And so you'd go over to the import section and and f- you know flip through, and you would find either twelve inch singles that weren't released here, or you'd find albums that didn't get released for this market. And um, if you had a good buyer for that department, you would really find good stuff. So there were a couple of good record stores growing up that would go and find things. You know, serendipitously, but then also, you could you could cozy up to the buyer, and they would order things for you. And so, I had a few friends that we would all you know who could order it first, so that by the time you, know, you got it, you could be like, ah, it came in, and you're gonna love it when you finally get it. What thinking back, what was the one like really really cool find that you had at one of these record stores? They're like, oh my god, I can't believe I found this version or this. Single. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so everyone told oh, well, you, totally put them on the spot. Maybe everyone doesn't remember Kajagugu, but Kajagugu, too shy. Oh, um, that's right. He mentioned this when we did the history of the remix because yeah. we threw it on there. Well, right. but this this is a different one. So oh, so okay. so Lamal went solo, you know, which was sad because you know Kajagugu was only there for the one album, and then then they fired him and he went solo. And so um, back then you didn't have the internet, and you didn't even necessarily sometimes know that someone what you didn't know when they were going to be releasing something. So you might be in the record store. And lo and behold, there was the new Lamal album. I was so excited, <laughs> and it's horrible. It's not a. It's not a good album. It's not good at all. And for anyone who's heard it, it's really pretty um, high, high schmaltz. So, yeah. but it was your favorite find. Yeah, it was my most surprising, exciting import find. Mm, okay, gotcha. Okay, yeah. So we listened to the. Duran Duran, I listened to the first two albums. Um, what do you think made them pop? And can you just explain a little bit, or maybe, Alan, you know this, what was the order? Because I feel like I got aware of them with Rio, but, you know, all my, like, I had friends who knew girls on film, and, like, so how did, what was the cadence of all of that? Okay, here's what, here's what happened. The first album came out. And it Title was, Duran Duran. that was the one with girls on film and Planet Earth. And that that was a hit in England. Um, then 
Um, it was making waves. MTV was happening. And the, the thing about Duran Duran that's so fascinating, there's so much to unpack. Part of what made them popular was that their videos had the director, Russell. And there's two ways maybe to say his name. I say Russell Mulcahy, but maybe Russell Mackay is the correct way to say his name. No, no, no. But anyway, he directed all their videos except for a couple, but that's, we won't get into that. Mm. He, and, and their videos were perfect for MTV. So, um, I remember them being like almost miniature movies, exactly. which was like a huge leap at the time with music videos. I mean, they may not have been the first, but we were used to some really mm. crummy music videos. And then they were like throwing paint in the water for like Hungry Like the Wolf. Or, <laughs> was that Rio? And I'm like, you're, you're poisoning the water. <laughs> yeah, so, so for Rio, which was the second album, um, they filmed their videos in Sri Lanka and they've had a very, very current um, Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of feel with elephants and pith helmet kind of situations yeah. and all that. And it was perfect for MTV. And so suddenly you had the suburbs getting these really exotic, glamorous music videos. And so then Rio and Hungry Like the Wolf and Save a Prayer became hits mm-hmm. in America. And, um, and then it mushroomed from there. They were they were perfectly engineered for the MTV generation because they were really good looking dudes. Mm. They were doing awesome music videos, and then the fact that they were actually really talented musicians and songwriters, which is, no one wanted to give them credit for. Right, and then taking a, a, a shooting forward, you know, everyone thought by the end of the '80s that their time had come and gone. And what what was interesting is. For those of you who may remember, there were the two splinter groups. There was the Power Station, which mm-hmm. was... Yeah, which we keep talking about. We need to do an episode mm-hmm. on the Power Station. Yeah. And Arcadia, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was Power Station and Arcadia, which were the two splinter groups. And when they regrouped after that, um, the drummer, Roger Taylor, and the guitarist, Andy Taylor, called it quits. So it was just right. three of them. That's what I wanted to ask you about, too, was like... And I remember Andy Taylor had this song from this movie, American Anthem, called Take It Easy. Do you remember that song? <laughs> just remember his album was called Thunder. And Thunder, it yes. It and it had, like, Cynthia Rhodes from Dirty Dancing and, like, <laughs> this guy Mitch Gaylord from the Olympics. And, like, they tried to make an action star. Right? Yeah. Anyway, let's play a second of Take It Easy here, right? <laughs> think the band lost with Andy Taylor and and separately why after he came back did he leave again like what is the crux of this dispute with him and the band you know okay so I've the only thing I've read that that didn't give me the answer to what you're asking was um John Taylor about four or five years ago had a um biography an autobiography and John talked about 
Andy, and I think they just didn't see eye to eye anymore because he was more, he wanted to be the guitar star. Mm. And Duran Duran's not really a rock god guitar solo kind of mm. band. So but, I was just thinking that it's like, it's like six degrees of Duran Duran because Kajagugu earlier, who I mentioned, that was produced by um, Nick Rhodes, right. Duran Duran. They actually had a number one in England before Duran Duran did, which was a big shocker at the time. Um, and then you were talking about uh, the Reflex mm. earlier, and the remix of that was um, um, Niall Edwards uh, and I mean Niall, Bernard Rogers. Edwards, Niall Rogers, yeah. but, uh, but Bernard Edwards did um, did Power, Power Station, Station. Mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, it's almost like everyone has been involved with them, even Lindsay Lohan as of late. Mm. That's right, she's so, on the yeah their last album. So tell me, so the assignment, part of the assignment was like, let's listen to the first album or two. Uh, and you guys were so jazzed about Duran Duran. Right. Jump in. What, like, what, was, what was your why? Well, for me, when I kind of, like I started like everybody, I had the greatest hits. And then I saw them in concert and I was like, I want to kind of get to know the band and hear mm-hmm. the stuff that maybe is not on the greatest hits. And it was like discovering for me new music because I'm listening to these original versions of the albums and not the, the jazzed up U.S. versions. And in many cases, I prefer the original versions of the songs. So, no, but why specifically the first two albums? I would argue that the first album... Okay, first of all, let me... Rio, which was the second album, yes. is one of the best albums of the 80s. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think it's very difficult to argue that it's not iconic from its... Patrick Nagel record co- you know, album cover to the videos to the actual music, which is I, the most important thing. It's one of the best albums. Okay. I get yeah, that you okay. think it's like one of the best albums right. of, of the, that. And I get the videos and I get the Nagel whatever, right? Like right. I get it. Yeah, right. I'm there. I'm Nagel picking up whatever. what you're putting down. Right. But musically, on that first album, in retrospect, I get it. But at the time, if I listened to that, I'd be like, there's two good songs and some okay songs. And the second one, I would have been like, the singles are amazing. There's the last song, The Chauffeur, uh-huh. quirky and cool. Right. Uh, and there's one, um, what's the third song on that album? On, I forget. on which one? The second album. It, um, Lonesome in Your Nightmare or something like There's a couple that are really good, but I don't know that those are definitive best of, of the 80s. I think maybe as a composite with the album artwork and everything else, but speak to the music in particular. See, I think this is obviously this boils down to a matter of taste and aesthetics because Mm -hmm. some argue and I agree that the album could almost be like Michael Jackson's Thriller was basically all singles with maybe Mm -hmm. one song that wasn't released. I think you could do the same with, with Rio. I think it could be almost every track on the album could be a single, I think. You guys, what are your top picks on the Rio album? Top picks? Well, okay, let me do non-singles to make my point. I think Hold Back the Rain, it's amazing that that wasn't a single. Do you want to play a little bit of that? Sure.
pick as well? Well, for me, it's Hungry Like the Wolf on Rio. Stop through the forest, too close to Do you have a non-album favorite? The Chauffeur is amazing. I'm picking The Chauffeur. Yeah, that's a classic. Well, I'm going to jump in and say that the first album, Duran Duran, that album, it, what's so special to that about that album for me is that it, it doesn't sound like any other music that was going on at the time, but it's clearly of its period. They had their own sound with the drums, with the synthesizers, but with this very, very tight rhythm going on. Um, I think that it, it stands up as one of those unusual debut albums that that's that absolutely that absolutely it's cohesive yes absolutely well, and it's you, fun seeing the growth from the first to the second album right but i i oh really i feel like they're they could be it could be a double album absolutely was, no absolutely not <laughs> absolutely not the first Why? album the first, the first album has a weird icy cool to it almost like you know, Japan, uh, the band Japan has this very synthetic, glossy kind of sound, whereas Rio is lush and orchestrated in saxophones and, um, you know, the little birds chirping in, in uh, Rio.
Um, so it's outside of the singles. I'm su- suggesting. I, I, okay. If I, anything, I could. I, I would say that Rio and Seven and the Ragged Tiger sound more mm. similar than the first and second. So I think the second and third album to me sound a lot more similar than the first and second one. That I would. I would. With with um, caveats, I would agree. Okay. Yeah. Mm. All right. So uh, so just to sort of wrap up on the whole new romantics thing, I remember just to bring it into like the popdom of today, Taylor Swift, she has her 1989 album, which is 1980, it's 80s infused music. She gets, what? you know, she's got that whole thing on. She drops some singles that are after the album comes out, which are good, right? One's called New Romantics. The first of them is New Romantics. And I felt from the way she kept a really good song off the album to sort of the Cynthia-inspired music of it to the name New Romantics, it was to evoke something. I don't want to speak for Taylor, or have you speak for Taylor. Oh, I most surely could not. <laughs> I most certainly couldn't speak for Taylor. What, what, in retrospect, do you guys think the New Romantics... Like, when someone does something like that, what are they referring to now that we have some time? Well, I think it had everything to do with what was going on in England, you know, politically and socially at that time. And how you had young people who wanted, they, they wanted aspirational music, they wanted aspirational style, they wanted, you know, they wanted an, the antithesis of punk but yet they wanted to own it the way the punk movement and the punk kids owned their music. They owned their clubs. Same thing with the New Romantics. It was their scene that they were creating. One question I had for you, John, would be, um, when do you think that this New Romantic movement sort of ended? Like, arguably, it ended, it, arguably it started in 1980 or 81 and ended in 1982. It was really brief. It was very, very brief, but I guess I would I, I would hope that everyone's takeaway, if it's not a subject you already knew about, it's a it, it with regard to when you're reading articles about certain things that are going on in fashion right now, when you read things that are going on in music right now, you you read the name or you see, hear the name New Romantic as a label for a period and a style, and that was what was marketed in the U.S. as New Wave. And New Wave and New Romantics, the New Romantics are not necessarily the same at all. It's, 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 it's you know what, I'll, I'll end with this. It's almost like Art Deco as a style is something we all know. That came decades later. No one called it Art Deco in the period. That was just modern, well-designed, well, high design furniture. And then as you get down, you know, a few decades later, that style was Art Deco. And same thing with, um, even though they did call themselves New Romantics at the time, we were all running around loving New Wave music. Well, not we all, but some of us were running around saying we love New Wave music. And it turns out that they were, they were it was, there was a social movement and a uh, kind of youth culture to that music that I think a lot of us didn't know about. Cool. All right. That's a wrap, I think, on Mixtape. If you have not, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you have questions or comments on this or, or an idea for an episode, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, and with that... Let's let John uh, take us out today since it's his first episode. Oh. Do it. 
Okay, how do I take us out? Just say, just uh, say, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. Your little or some race. other little thing. Or very ap- appropriate for Duran Duran, have champagne wishes and caviar dreams. Yes, darling. <laughs> Bye. All right.